please open your Bibles to the 130th Psalm. The, the notes are in the bulletin and the text is printed on the back if you, if you need that. The 130th Psalm. I read it earlier, but I'd, I'd like to read it again. It's brief and it's profound. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in this word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. This is a psalm of ascents. We've, we've been the third, I believe, psalm of ascents we've looked at in our series going through the psalms. And I'll remind you that the Psalms of Ascents were a group of songs specially picked out, a subset of the songs, the Psalms. Um, for pilgrims, the, pil the thrice annual pilgrimage that Israel was to take to Jerusalem. In, in Deuteronomy 16, 16, the law the Lord appointed that for three feasts, all the able-bodied men in Israel were to come and celebrate the feast corporately together. And so at least three times a year, unless you lived in or around Jerusalem, you were going to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is on Mount Zion, so from whatever direction you were coming, you were ascending. You were going up to Jerusalem. Whether you came from the north, or the south, or the east, or the west. And so this is one of 15 psalms set aside as appropriate, fitting, useful for that pilgrimage. In other words, this is not a specific psalm about a specific event, like say Psalm 51, which clearly tells us this is written by David after he killed a man and stole his wife. This is a general psalm. It's also classed by people who, who like to class such things as a penitential psalm, one of seven penitential psalms, a psalm focusing the emphasis on confession of sin, the seeking of forgiveness, the laying out of one's heart to God. And it's short, and yet it is profound. It deals with God, and it deals with our weakness, our frailty, our fear, our anxiety, our trouble, our anguish. One of the things I love about the Psalms, if you read through them, yes, there are happy, rejoicing, exultant Psalms, but about half of the Psalms actually express lament, sorrow, pain. <clears throat> You know, sometimes when you get a picture of the Christian life that it's just a big, happy, clappy yay. And there's some truth. Paul says that outwardly crushed, inwardly being renewed, but there is sorrow, and the Psalms deal with that with reality. Psalms can be raw. It can be real. They don't pretend that life is a bowl of cherries. So we'll see that this morning as we look at grace for the drowning. Grace for the drowning. The Psalm divides neatly into... into Four strophes or verses, verses one and two, verses three and four, verses five and six, verses seven and eight. And so we'll look through it in four points. We're to learn how to deal with guilt, how to deal with anguish and sorrow and alienation from God. 
So let's dive in looking at the first two verses. Point one, the first thing we're going to see is that when drowning in anguish, when drowning in sorrow, when drowning in guilt, call upon the Lord when drowning in sin. Call upon the Lord when drowning in sin. And you can't miss it here. It's repeated. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. At least three times he is calling upon God. At least three times. This isn't just a faint little, this is, this is crawling upon, crying out to God. And what we note here is, and this is fundamentally for believers. You may read this psalm and think, okay, this is a psalm for unbelievers. Well, it is. But this is a psalm for believers. Remember, this was given to the covenant community going to celebrate the feasts. So fundamentally, this is a song to be sung by faithful people, which right off the bat can mess with us because oftentimes we think, well, once you're saved, you don't deal with guilt anymore. And once you're saved, you don't deal with sin anymore. And once you're saved, all that stuff gets put behind you. Guilt and anguish, that's, that's, that's from before. That's not for now. Apparently not. Apparently, this is one of 15 songs that God in his wisdom thought would be good for Israel in general regularly to sing three times a year on the way to Jerusalem. In other words, God thought this and this soul attitude was common for his people. So take some encouragement there. If you're in anguish, if you're in sorrow, even as a Christian, that's okay. What we do with it is what matters. And again, I've said this before, but I think sometimes we can get this feeling that as, as people of faith, that if somehow we are discouraged, if somehow we feel far from God, then we're letting the side down. And then you've got to fake it till you make it, as Joel Osteen says. No, get real. The Psalms are real, okay? The Psalms are real. Spirit-filled, inspired men of God wrote things like this. Out of the depths I cry to you. It's drowning. That's the language. I'm drowning, Lord. You know, Israel, they did some work on the sea, but they, they primarily were a land-based people, and, and so it's, it's common in their literature for the sea to be something they're afraid of. You, think, you remember how the, the Red Sea destroyed Pharaoh's armies and Jonah being in the belly of the fish, and so a picture of drowning is frequently used in, in their literature of the Old Testament as, as being in the utmost distress. Listen to the language of of Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. This is the picture here. Out of the depths. Or maybe it's the picture of Jonah calling from the fish's belly. In chapter 2, Jonah writes, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and he heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. To the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So this is, this is graphic language of being in trouble and distress. And if you're there, God has a word for you today. If, if that's your experience, God's grace reaches there. God's given us something in his word that can, that can reach that. His word isn't only for people who've got it all together. Amen. I'm glad for that. But we also notice that 
This calling upon God, that's the first thing. What do you do? You call upon God. But you call upon God, point A, with a deep awareness of sin and guilt. With a deep awareness of sin and guilt. It's unmistakable. You know, some of the commentaries are trying to argue, well, what's going on here? Is this fundamentally physical distress? Well, there are psalms that speak of that. My enemies are having victory over me. The psalms about the deportation in Babylon. You can't miss what this is about. Listen. Just read through it. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I need mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. I need mercy because I have iniquities and you have forgiveness. Jump down to verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? Why should I hope in the Lord? Because with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The, the distress, the anguish this person is singing of is over sin and the consequences of sin. Alienation, grief, depression, sorrow, heartbreak, a feeling of being separated from God. And remember, this is something apparently regenerate, saved people can experience. We, our sin will never put us in, in threat of hell if we're, if we're united to Christ by faith. We, we'll never run the risk of facing God as the judge who will sentence us to hell, as those who, who do not know the Lord will. But within God's family, there is still discipline. He disciplines those he loves. Listen to uh, Proverbs, no, so, sorry, Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Cherishing sin in my heart can cause my prayers to bounce off the ceiling, as it were. You know, Peter tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Right? Or listen to Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, so shortened that it cannot save, or his ear so dull that it cannot hear. The problem of our situation is not on God's end. It's not that his salvation is inadequate, but rather your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The psalmist is, is aware that he is separated from God. He's aware that his sin has caused a problem in his relationship. And within God's family and the discipline of his sons and daughters, that happens. You know, and there's these half-truths we've got to wrestle with. We say, you know, nothing we can do can make God love us more or less. Well, Jude says to keep yourself in the love of God. And so if what you mean is, there's nothing I can do that can make God more or less committed to bringing me to glory. There's nothing I can do that can make God more or less committed to not letting me slip through his hand. Well, amen and amen and amen. But there's plenty I can do to make God more or less pleased with me to increase or decrease my fellowship with him, to invite his discipline or his pleasure. Oh, there's plenty I can do to do that. And so this psalm's dealing with that. And so the first thing we gotta learn is we gotta be honest about that. And we don't wanna treat our sin lightly. And I might be belaboring this point here, but look where the psalm gets to it. It deals radically and it deals honestly with sin at the beginning, but by the end, there's evangelism, there's praise. We're going to get, how do you get from here to seven and eight? Where you're not just dealing with yourself anymore, but you're dealing with your neighbor and you're, you're grabbing by the shoulder and saying, hope in the Lord. Well, this psalm shows us how to get there. Well, the answer isn't by dealing with sin lightly. 
And we can do that. We can, we can deal with sin lightly as Christians. We just did a series on dealing with sin because, because the elders and, and Pastor Daniel and I think that's an important thing that we need to understand. It's all too easy when we sin to say, well, it's, Jesus forgives me, we're all set, good. This psalm shows us another path. We, we live in a world where I think one of our greatest problems is a lack of awareness of sin. James Montgomery Boyce on this psalm writes, our problem today, especially in appreciating a psalm like this, is that most of us do not have much of an awareness of sin. We live most of our lives with very little awareness of God. And where God has been abolished, an awareness of sin is inevitably abolished also because sin is defined only in relationship to God. You get that? If we're not aware of God and offending him, then our sin's not gonna seem like a big deal. And already we're inclined to downplay those sins that don't visibly hurt other people. So we can see the evil of murder and we can see the evil of rape. But the evil of pride, the evil of coveting, evil of lust, those aren't as obvious to us because God's not in the picture. We also live in a world that, that is increasingly trying to insist that depression and guilt and sorrow is not a spiritual reality. More and more, in fact, our world is saying it's a chemical and biological reality. I mean, think about that. We live in a world that insists if we learn two things from World War II, if we will learn two things in the last century, they are that morals are not really, they don't really exist, and that man is basically good. We, we came out of the bloodiest century in human history with the conclusion that morality is relative, and that people are basically good, and if they're not good, well, it's a problem with their environment, or it's a problem with the way their parents raised them, or it's a problem with their biochemistry. It's certainly not a problem with them. And yet, while we insist on that, the, the problem in the secular world with depression and anxiety is skyrocketing. Just this last week, we saw a noted celebrity despair and end his life. Waltke writes this on this topic. Being in the depths as a guilty sinner is not popular thinking today. Sin has lost its meaning in secularism, and the role of the Holy Spirit has been misunderstood, as evidenced in the prevailing rivalry between the human spirit and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Yet the emotional realm of the depths of despair remains overpopulated territory today. What he's saying is this. Even if we don't want to call it a spiritual issue, even if we don't want to call it guilt, people are living in the depths. People are, are taking medication and seeking help. This is the experience of people. We just call it something different. But, but calling it something different doesn't change the experience. He says people remain in the overpopulated territory today of the depths of despair. With the global pandemic of human depression being viewed by the medical profession as clinically as serious as heart attacks. Yet to assume that guilt vanishes with medication and to dismiss religion is rather like treating a migraine by cutting off one's head. This psalm powerfully compels us all to re-examine our basic beliefs about God and sin. It is not about our social circumstance. It is about our primary existence as guilty sinners before a holy God. And so God wants us to deal rightly with our sin. Why, to crush us, to rub our nose in it? No, to bring us through the other side to forgiveness, to redemption, to joy. Don't, don't short-circuit that process with a trite and cheap treatment of sin. You will end up with a trite and cheap treatment of salvation. 
with an awareness of sin. Second, notice the boldness with a bold and persistent prayer. At least three times, this psalmist is crying out. And, and that's the contrast. That's what we want to get balanced out here. An awareness of sin, but not one that causes us like the dog who hides behind the couch with his tail between his legs. That type of guilt is bad guilt. The guilt you're experiencing drives you away from God, drives you away from the cross, drives you away from his word. That, that's not good guilt. There is guilt that is bad. Notice simultaneously this person's confessing their sin, confessing their need, confessing their despair, and just persistently, vehemently calling out to God. I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice, O Lord. Let your ears be attentive, O Lord, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's persistent. He's bold. And so coexisting within this person is a deep awareness of sin and guilt, and yet a deep boldness in prayer. Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow, and he introduces it saying he taught them this parable to teach them to be persistent in prayer and never to give up. And so it's balancing this out, a deep and real awareness of God's holiness and our sin and our guilt, and yet a boldness in prayer. Both are modeled here. A boldness in prayer with a focused understanding of your need for grace. With a focused understanding of your need for grace. Notice the psalmist is intent on what he needs. He doesn't need a raise. He doesn't need help with his enemies. He doesn't need deliverance from some specific situation. What he needs is mercy. What he needs is forgiveness. What he needs is steadfast love. What he needs is plentiful redemption. That's what he needs. And again, this, this, this begs the question of why we're drawing near to God. We talked last week about the prosperity gospel, and there are many who draw near to God because what they need is more money. What they need is more health. What they need is more prosperity. What they need is a husband, a wife, children. Th those aren't things that are necessarily wrong to pray for. This is what we first and foremost need. We need grace. We need God's grace. When you're in despair, when you're in anguish, more than you need medication, more than you need self-help, you need grace. And the good news, I mean, I'm jumping ahead. The good news is, look down at verse 7. With the Lord, there is plentiful, abundant, overflowing redemption. If you can just wrap your head around the fact that what you need most of all is grace, mercy, God's got it in spades. God's an overflowing fountain of grace and redemption and forgiveness. But we need to be aware that we need it. We need to be aware of our guilt and our sin. As believers or as unbelievers, we need to be bold in approaching him and not afraid to approach. And we need to be focused that what we need from God first and foremost is grace, mercy, forgiveness. We can pray for the other things. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. He taught us to pray for many things. The Psalms show us models of praying for other things, but this is first and foremost what we need to pray for, especially when we're drowning. So the first stanza we see, the psalmist calls upon the Lord. Second, he appeals to the Lord, appeal to the Lord using gospel logic. Appeal to the Lord using gospel logic. One of the interesting th things to see in the scriptures is when men reason with God, when, when men talk to God. I mean, I don't know if you think this way, but as I'm studying this this week, questions enter my mind. Why is he telling the Lord what he tells him in verse 3 and 4? Does the Lord not know? 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Well, he can't be telling the Lord that primarily as if to inform him or in any way to inform him. Rather, he's, he's reasoning with the Lord. This is what Moses does on Sinai when he's pleading for Israel. Oh, Lord, far be it from you that you would, and he goes on. He's reasoning, he's recounting who God is. When you reason with God using gospel logic, when you're dealing with your sin and your guilt, it's important first to confess your sin without excuse. Confess your sin without excuse. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There it is. I'm guilty. There it is. Lord, if, if you were to take into account what I've done, and what I've thought, and what I've said in my heart, and, and in time and space, I'm, I'm done. That's it. I'm done. The reasoning that he brings for forgiveness has nothing to do with anything he's done. And, and we're hardwired to do that. We want just knee-jerk. Lord, I've been good. Lord, I've been as good as everyone else. Yep, and everyone else can't stand either. Notice that here. You can, you can compare yourself with other people. We're all under judgment. There's not some good guys and bad guys. Jesus is the good guy. We're the bad guys. And even if we want to compare ourselves by ourselves, we're all guilty. And there's no attempt at excuse-making here. I'm guilty. Lord, if you knew what I thought, said, and did, and you do, I can't stand. No one can stand. There's no one who can stand. Luther, this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He called it one of the Pauline psalms. And Luther, if you remember, as a, as a Catholic monk, was wrestling with this. I mean, these are things people don't wrestle with any, every day. What Luther is wrestling with is the reality of how can God be holy and forgive sin? How, how can he do that? How, how, can, how can the holiness of God, which says he, he hates sin, which says he punishes evil, the Bible is pretty clear on that. How, how can a holy God have anything to do with me? And he, and he wrestled with that. And, and, and in, in Romans and in this psalm and other places, he sees that reality lined up. And somehow it is. I'm guilty, but with you there's forgiveness. I'm guilty, but with you there's forgiveness. You know, Paul says something similar about this. Who could stand in Romans 3? At the end of Romans 3, he writes... As it is written, this is Paul sort of summarizing God's the prosecution's case, as it were, against man. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This, this is the story of all of us. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. A way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now what Paul says in eight verses this psalm says in a simple line, O oh Lord, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? I got no defense. We want to do that. It's not as bad, Lord, as you think it is. And you've got to understand that I was having a hard day, Lord. That, that, don't bring that stuff. Don't bring that stuff. It will do you no good. Throw yourself on the free mercy of God, but confess your sin without excuse. Second, 
Cling to the promise of free and undeserved grace. Cling to the promise of free and undeserved grace. Turn in your Bibles to Micah 7, please. So I want you to notice how this works. The logic's astounding. This is gospel logic. Completely guilty. But you're forgiven. That's, that's the reasoning he employs. Completely guilty. I'm dead to rights. You got me. But I know who you are. It's not about who I am and what I've done. It's about who you are. With you, there is forgiveness. This is bold, gutsy guilt talking. Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9 is a wonderful passage showing how guilty sinners can boldly reason with God using gospel logic. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. You notice the logic there. Dead to rights, I'm guilty. I sinned against God. And he is going to plead my cause. And he is going to restore me. John Piper writes about this passage. To the fallen saint who knows the darkness is self-inflicted and feels the futility of looking for hope from a frowning judge, the Bible gives a shocking example of gutsy guilt. It pictures God's failed prophet beneath a righteous frown, bearing his chastisement with broken hearted boldness. This is courageous contrition, gutsy guilt. The saint has fallen. The darkness of God's indignation is on him. He does not blow it off, but waits. And he throws in the face of his accusers the confidence that his indignant judge will plead his cause and execute justice, not for, for not against him. This is the application of justification to the fallen saint. This, this, is, this, is, this is how we reason with God. God, I'm guilty, but Jesus. God, I did wickedly. I, I, I disregarded you. I, I pursued my own desires. I followed my own wisdom. I, I fed my own lusts. Lord, you would be just to, to wipe me off the face of the earth, but I know who you are, and I know who Jesus is, and I know what he has done. And that's what my hope is in. My hope isn't in that I've got a reasonable excuse. My hope isn't in that I'm doing as good as the next guy. The hope isn't in that I'm doing my best. This, this is the amazing news of the gospel. Notice nothing in this psalm earns or merits this forgiveness. Nothing in this psalm. It's free. The contrast, Lord, if, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? But with you, it's about who God is. It's not about who I am. That, that's, the, that's the message of the gospel. You know, every, every religion in the world has got people working, working, working for forgiveness. Every religion in the world. Doing things for forgiveness. Earning forgiveness. This is stunning in its simplicity. I'm guilty, but you forgive. With you, there's forgiveness. With me, there is sin and guilt. With you, there is forgiveness. With me, there is wretchedness, brokenness, sorrow, drowning. With you, there is plentiful redemption. That, that's the way we approach God. We, we approach God empty-handed. We don't come with gifts. We don't come with, with offerings as if somehow we're enticing his favor. We come as the naked, broken, dirty, worthless people 
And we come because of who he is, not because of who we are. And that's the offer of the gospel. We, we sang about it this morning. God, knowing we were rebels, knowing that we were alienated from him, knowing that we were far from him, knowing that in every fiber of our being, we wanted to go our own way, do our own thing, follow our own desires. While we were his enemies, he sent his son. Nothing we did invited that. Nothing we did warranted that. It's just because with him there is forgiveness, he did that. And he sent his son Jesus to come and live the life we could not and would not live, to die on a cross for our sins. This, this psalm doesn't explain how God can do this. It just says that he does do this. He does forgive. It doesn't tell us how. You've got you to keep reading the Bible to figure out how that gospel logic continues to work. He did it because he punished the innocent one. He did it because someone else paid our penalty. And on that basis, free, free forgiveness is offered. There are none too poor, there are none too wretched to be saved, but there are sadly far too many too great, too good, and too proud. People who won't admit they need mercy. People who won't admit they're guilty. People who won't admit they need steadfast love. With you, there is forgiveness. We cling to the promise of free and undeserved grace. And that is meant in turn to create a response in us. He says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Notice the cause and effect relationship. It's not fear God and do things and you get forgiven. If you are forgiven, outflows the fear of the Lord. We respond in reverent worship and holy obedience. Respond in reverent worship and holy obedience. And again, this, this gets back to my first point about how we as Christians can deal lightly with sin and when we deal lightly with sin, it does not create awe and reverence. It creates triviality, familiarity, and contempt. If your way of dealing with your sin is, well, we're not saved by works, and so God knew what I'd do before I did it, and so of course he forgives me, and I'm good. I don't think you're going to respond with reverential awe and fear. But here, God's purpose in working us through this, of bringing on conviction, bringing on sorrow, bringing on anguish, to drive us to the cross, to drive us to let go of what's in our hands and look to him empty-handed with nothing to barter with and just say, I'm guilty, but with you there's forgiveness, is to create in us reverent worship and holy obedience. It's like Psalm 211. We're to rejoice with trembling. Proverbs Eight, sorry, Proverbs 16, 6 gives us this insight into the fear of the Lord. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You see, as we grow in understanding of our salvation and our sin, rather than viewing sin less lightly, you go and read the Christian biographies, you go and read about the great saints and the faith, they were growing in their appreciation of sin, not lessening in it. John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, I'm listening to a biography of John Newton right now, and these are men, this is, this is Luther's favorite hymn, this is the text that John Wesley was saved by. In church history, Godly men and women grow in their appreciation and understanding of their sin. They don't lessen in it. 
And they grow consequently in the appreciation of their salvation, the appreciation of who God is and what has been done for them. It's, it's the logic of 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. Now listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And what Peter's saying is this. The majority of the world will face the living God only as a holy judge. The majority of the world will not face the living God as a father. The majority of the world will face the living God as a holy judge who will condemn them, who will sentence them to hell. They will. But we, we are the people who dare to say, no, not us, he's our father. Because we have been accepted, because we have been redeemed, because we have trusted Christ by faith, He's no longer the judge for us. He's our father. Peter's saying, if, if that's who you think you are, if that's what you're claiming to be, if, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You better take that seriously. You better take the privilege of that and, and be in wonder about it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, what Peter's saying is, if we truly are saved, if we truly are forgiven, the last thing we're going to do, the last thing we should do is minimize sin and minimize the seriousness of holiness. The last thing we should do is say, well, you know, it's okay because you can't lose your salvation. That should be the last thing we say. We of all people should be aware of the cost. We of all people should be aware of what it took. We of all people should be aware of the greatness of sin, the holiness of God. I mean, everyone else, they don't get it. We should get it. We should be the last people to talk about sin and holiness lightly, optionally, frivolously. No, with God, there's forgiveness so that he might be feared. That's how God ordered things. It's to produce in us a growing understanding of who he is and who we are and what's been done for us. Third, third then, we wait upon the Lord in expectant hope. Wait upon the Lord in expectant hope. Now what's he waiting for? What's he waiting for? I think he's waiting for God. I think he's waiting for restoration. He knows he's forgiven. He feels far from God. He feels drowning. And he, he rehearses to God, rehearses to God, I know who I am and I know who you are. And I'm counting on who you are, not who I am, to save me. But that doesn't mean that instantly our feelings of alienation, our feelings of separation are gone. He waits on God. He's, okay, Lord, I know you're forgiving. And if I don't feel that and if I don't experience that and if my heart within me, my soul within me is so anxious and still burdened and laden, then you know what I'm going to do? I ain't going anywhere else. I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you, Lord. In your time, you'll come. In your time, you'll restore me. In your time, you'll lift my head. Wait for the restoration that comes from God. Again, don't turn someplace else. Don't talk yourself up with, with self-help about how good we are and how valuable we are. Wait on the Lord. James says it this way, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to joy. Let your laughter return to mourning and to joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't, don't exalt yourself. Don't look to something else. Wait on the Lord. And this is repeated emphatically 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. When things are repeated, it's, it's to emphasize, to stress the importance of waiting on God. Waiting in prayer. Okay, I know what's true. I'm guilty of sin. I know it's true. He's forgiving. And so even though I feel like he's far away, and even though I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, I will confess my sin. I will call upon him boldly, and I will wait on him. We believe and hope in his promises of future grace. Believe in hope in his promises of future grace. The, the, the psalmist is putting his hope in God and in his word. Notice the connection, because how do you know about God? Do you intuit? Do you learn who God is by self-examination? No, you learn who God is from his word. And so who God says he is and what he promises to us, that's what we build our hope in. You're feeling discouraged? Your word says, I will never leave or forsake you. I'm gonna put my hope in that. Your, your word says that I'm more precious to you than sparrows that you're aware of. Your word says you won't let anyone slip through your hands. And so in your word, Lord, I'm going to put my hope. I'm going to look to that. While my soul is within me in anguish, while I am burdened down with sorrow and depression, while I feel like I am drowning, I'm, I'm looking here. I'm not looking to Dr. Phil. I'm not looking to distractions. Looking to your word and to your promises of grace that your mercies will be new every day. Your promise is that if we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us. Your promise is that, that Christ died for us and that what you've begun in us, you will complete. I'm, I'm, I'm banking everything on that. My hope is in his word and in the Lord. And then that last phrase, point C, fix your heart and hope only on him. This, this phrase, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, is a powerful image, either of soldiers guarding a city or of shepherds guarding a flock. And you can imagine if you've been given the night shift, it's anxious. The reason you have guards at night is because under cover of darkness, enemies can approach walls. Under cover of darkness, wolves and lions can approach sheep. And so you have a night watchman. But the purpose of the night watchman is you're the first person to encounter the danger. And so you're filled with anxiety, you're filled with stress, you don't want a wolf to come upon you, you're sitting there in the dark and you hear rustlings and you're, is that, what is that? And so what's the thing you're hoping for? What's the thing that you're looking for? What's the thing that the second you see the faintest lightning in the distance you're looking for? Because when the dawn comes, the danger is gone. When the dawn comes, the fear is gone. When the dawn comes, your shift is over and so you're looking for it, man. I don't think there's a single night watchman who ever was surprised by the dawn. They're looking intently. They're not, they're not checking their Facebook status, right? They're not playing Angry Birds. They're looking at the dawn, man, because that's where my hope is coming from. That's when this trial ends. That's where my deliverance comes from. So if you feel far from God, wait on the Lord. Don't, don't be distracted by something else. Be focused, be intent. Set your heart and your hope only on him and his word. Like 1 Peter 1.13 says, fix your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then finally, fourth stanza, things change. In, in the first three stanzas, God has been addressed. The psalmist, it's, it's I and thou in the first three stanzas, I and you. And now, in the, in the final stanza, there's a shift to the congregation. There's a shift to the corporate people of God. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord. I, I take it from this that his waiting is done. That he has experienced at least the f- first foretaste of, of that restoration, of that lifting of his head that comes from waiting on God. And now, as he experiences what he has rehearsed earlier, before he announced what he knew is true by faith, you forgive. Now, now he's feeling it. He's now overflowing in, in, in proselytizing and evangelizing his fellow countrymen. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He'll redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, how do you know? Because he redeemed me. How do you know he has plentiful redemption? Because he had enough for me. How do you know he has steadfast love? Because he was loving to me. This is going from the one to the many. This is going from the personal experience out horizontally to God's people. We're to celebrate the Lord and his salvation. Celebrate the Lord and his salvation. And we only have a few minutes, but I just want to make a point. You are a channel of grace, not a bucket. You are a channel of grace, not a bucket. I mean, to think about what I might be meaning by that. You are a channel of grace, not a bucket. While you think about that, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. What I mean is this. Here's what I mean. God's individual acts of compassion and salvation, God's individual graces poured out to individual people, me, I, myself, are meant to be shared, are meant to be passed on, are meant to be announced to the rest of the people of God. God God means his grace to channel through you. You're not a bucket. You're a channel. You're the bed of a stream of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Isn't that, amen, we, we worship the God of all comfort? Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God's giving you comfort so you can comfort other people. God's giving you grace so you can pass it on. God delivered this person so he could turn around and tell the entire congregation, let me tell you about how the Lord saved me, and let me, you need need to turn to him too. You need to hope in him too. We're not buckets, we're channels. And maybe maybe a reason why you're, you're not experiencing God's grace you're not experiencing your fellowship. You're not experiencing your relationship with him as you ought. It's because you're acting like a bucket. And God knows if he pours any more in, it's going to bust. Pass it on. Share it. This is, this is one of the things we do at our, 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 when we pray. We gather on Sunday nights. We have opportunities to share prayer requests and praises. If, if God's done something for you in your life, let others know. Has he been gracious to you? Has he been good to you? I know he has. I just don't know how. Tell me. Tell someone. Speak his praise. In practical ways. Notice also, <laughs> praising God doesn't have to be about how great we are. We want to talk about our successes. This is a psalm about failure. Failure on the part of the individual. <laughs> Success on the part of God. Let me tell you how good God is. I was a terrible, terrible person last week. Let me tell you how good God was in forgiving me. Let me tell you how gracious he was in restoring me. Let me tell you how patient he was in waiting for me. You're a channel of grace, not a bucket. Which leads you then to tell the body of God's grace in your life. 
This is, this is what is meant in Hebrews chapter 10. And the author of Hebrews writes in verse 23, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And let me suggest to you, one of the powerful ways that we can encourage each other is by sharing God's goodness and his salvation in our life. But a year ago, somebody here came into my office and shared precisely something like this, their, their weakness and God's goodness. And it was incredibly encouraging. It's incredibly encouraging. Pass it on. Don't be a bucket. Don't experience spiritual constipation. Pass it on. <laughs> Pass it on. God didn't design us to be buckets. We're to be channels, conduits. Stream beds of his grace. And finally, stay amazed by grace. The end here, I mean, and what a contrast, right? The beginning, I'm drowning. Lord, don't turn away. Lord, listen to me. Pay attention. Yes, I'm guilty of sin, but I know who you are. Now he's just overflowing with praise. He's, he's evangelizing God's people. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? With him, there's steadfast love. With him, there's plentiful, abundant, overflowing redemption. It's not a little small gospel. It's a big salvation. He's amazed. His, his experience of guilt, his experience of, of sorrow and grief has created a greater joy. See, we want to minimize guilt and grief because we think that maximizes joy. It doesn't. Because unless we really deal with sin and guilt, we can call it other names and we can take pills. It ain't going away until we deal with it. But if we look at it rightly and speak of it rightly and deal with it rightly, what joy, what experience of God's goodness and grace is on the other side? We didn't do our eight-week series on sin to make people feel bad. We did our eight-week series on sin so people could get to verses seven and eight, live in verses seven and eight, speak verses seven and eight to each other that they would know firsthand about God's steadfast love, about his plentiful redemption, that they could turn to their neighbor and say, I don't care what you've done, he will redeem you from all your iniquities. All your iniquities, not some of them. This is part of that abundant, overflowing redemption. Whatever you've done, he's got a gospel big enough for it. Wherever you're at, his grace can reach. No matter how drowning and how down you are and how deep you are in the pit or Underwater, if you feel like you're at the bottom of Marinus Trench, His grace can reach you there. He can deliver you. He can restore you. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Don't, don't look to other hopes. Hope in the Lord. Hope in His love. Hope in His salvation. Hope in His gospel. It doesn't amaze you. You don't understand it because it's amazing. Now, we're to call the worship team up here. Our final song this morning is based upon this text. And I just want to encourage you this morning while the worship team comes up. If you are far from God, if you feel, if you feel crushed, maybe, maybe you don't know the living God, maybe you're not a Christian. Confess your sin, turn to him, trust in his forgiveness, trust in his son. Maybe you are a Christian, but you're feeling his hand upon you. You're feeling his face turned from you. Call upon him, be bold in prayer. Hope in his salvation. Reason with gospel logic. Wait upon him. 
Press through so you can celebrate the experience of God's salvation. We're going to sing now Psalm 130. Please stand.